Hey, everybody. This is It Came From New Jersey. This is another special bonus episode for everybody. Um, my name is Pete. I'm one of your hosts. And my name is Bob. I am your other host. So today on the program, we have um, an old friend of ours, um, Joe from uh, Don Giovanni Records. Um, this week on the show, we talked about Screaming Females Power Move. Uh, we talked through the whole album. So now we have Joe on the program to kind of help fill in those gaps, you know, and give us his experience, you know, around that time and uh, that era of Screaming Females and, you know, just have a have a fun conversation. So welcome to the program, Joe. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, can you give the listeners, anyone who's unfamiliar, you know, with you or what you've been involved in, kind of the history of a short history of Don Giovanni um, and, you know, where you are now, what you're working on? Yeah, um, that's already a lot to ask. With a short history, um, <laughs> this is this is not a uh, a brief history of time. Don't worry about it. You yeah. know what I mean? It sort of feels like it. Sometimes I feel like um, I feel like it's one of those questions I get asked a lot, and I've been getting yeah. asked. It's one of the. It's it's a funny. It's like people ask you, "How did you start the label?" or something. Just like, "Why did you name your band?" or "How did you start your band?" If you're in a band, mm-hmm. and I mean, I'm weirdly. I realized the other day I've been doing this for 18 years. And so, isn't that a trip? Yeah, welcome so, to a, so, welcome so, to adulthood, Don Giovanni Records. Oh, it's so, crazy. So just fit those eighteen years into like one and a half minutes, and we're good. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the point. It's like the further away in time, like the older the label gets, the less interesting or even like worth discussing. Sometimes I'm like the early, like why did I start this? Like I don't. Does it even matter at this point? Does right. At this point, like I just have less and less interesting things to say about. Um, I think I've been telling because of the story, but um, I really, I, I mean, yeah, um, I didn't really plan to like start a record label, I guess. Um, but it was something that I think I ended up being really good at, which is the fact that this has been going on for 18 years. Um, for sure. Makes sense. And so. Um, how about we, how about we pivot real quick on this? Let's pivot. Give me. A- so here's, here's how I'm going to pivot it. When did it, when did it switch over for you? Because like you said, you know what I mean? Like when did it go from like, I just kind of do this thing to like, Oh no, no, no. This is a thing I do now. So that's, that's a great question. There was two key moments in the label's history. Um, the first, one of them is very relevant to today's conversation. Um, Mm. the first one though was, um, the Ergs, um, Jersey's best prancers album. So prior to Jersey's Best Prancers, um, the label was only really putting things out that nobody else wanted to put out. So if an artist could find another label, I would just say, you know what, go put that out on a label. The whole goal was just to kind of have things, you know, on vinyl at the time that I just wanted to have on vinyl. For sure. Um, A labor of love. What? A labor of love. It was a, not, yeah, a, not just a labor of love, but um, but a labor of love with this like philo- the philosophy would sort of I don't really want to run a label, but there's records that I'd love to see on vinyl that I'm not sure who else would put them out, um, right. yep. including Dork Rock Cork Rod at the time was yep. only we only did that because there was no one that would have put that out on vinyl in 2006, which is crazy to think about, but that's just a fact. Yeah, yeah, so, it, no, it definitely is. When Jersey Best Pranchers came out, the Ergs had gotten more popular and they had an offer from Gern Blanstein to do that record, which was a label I grew up like really admiring. 
And I remember actually talking to Charles for like advice on some things really early on. So I was like, holy shit, you know, you should do that. Like, that's great news. And then I'll just get a copy of the album on Gern Blanstein. Right. And there was like this <laughs> epiphany that Zach and I had on the bus down. We were taking the bus from Boston to New York to see like Ben in a Shape, The Urge, The Unlovables, Steinway. It's like eight pop punk bands at um, Knitting Factory in that small room downstairs. We were taking the bus down mm-hmm. from Boston. And on the bus ride, we were just kind of like, what if we actually did that record and then we decided to just do what a real label like Gern Blanstein does and just figure out like what a real label does. Like what if we did that? And so we probably drunkenly while we were still <laughs> on the bus ride down to the show called up the ergs and we're like with that pitch, like what if we actually did this record instead of Gern Blanstein, we'll do all the things a real label does. Um, and by the time we got to the show, they had agreed to let us do it. And then it was like, I guess we have to figure out what a real label does. So I was like, I'm going to email right. Charles and ask what Gern Blanstein actually does. <laughs> um, hey, so actually, I'm, yeah. I, I want to do that record you asked to do. But because this is kind I of a weird world, I'm still going to ask you for some advice. Is that cool? Isn't That's that weird cool. how that was? Uh, I don't think I told him it was for the ergs or anything, or it was like, <laughs> I hope there was no hard feelings. That, there's no, I don't, I don't think so. And so. But it was this moment of like, I guess we're going to actually try to do the label a little more seriously. Um, and then the next moment came a few years later with Screaming Females and Power Move, actually, specifically. Yeah. And... That was when, you know, we put out 28 other records. This was the 29th release, which I can still remember. Um, And it was still mostly just putting out bands that we felt like, you know, we, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. We were still just kind of like putting out things on vinyl or on CD. That's literally what we were just pressing them, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, hey, we're going to put out a record. Here is that record. Your record is out. There's a physical manifest- manifestation of this recording, and we're done. And that was, to be honest, that's what a lot of labels did at the time. It's funny that now I feel like it's it's less the thing because you have all these digital options. But back then, you just needed somebody to manifest your stuff into the world physically to sell at shows and to sell the people yeah it's so for someone to hold to literally just hold something in their hand yeah and then with the with the, the with screaming females um i made a really i don't know how hard of a pitch i made to them i made what i felt like was a hard pitch though where i was like you know what we should or actually i should go back a little bit and i don't know if you edit this or not but i don't totally care if you doesn't matter do, it to go back we'll, yeah. we'll let it in it's nice yeah. you, you can keep this in with me saying but rewind a second. <laughs> i can tell this a little better um there's a person named fid which i know pete knows because they were in a band together briefly sure yeah and he kind of played matchmakers Three females were around for a while um they'd done two records on their own and I thought that was like really admirable because as you can imagine, starting the label the way I did and doing the label, I always thought it was really cool when bands self-release stuff. So I didn't really want to, I wasn't out there trying to stop a band from doing that. So they were one of those bands that I really liked a lot in New Brunswick at the time. And they would have made sense for Don Giovanni, but they were doing their own thing, which was very cool. And so I 
just let them do their own thing. Um, but then one, but, but Fid used to have people over to his house all the time, um, to watch like bad TV and bad movies. And one of those nights, Fid basically played like matchmaker and he was like, you know, Screaming Females told me that if they ever were going to do a record on a record label, they'd want it to be on Don Giovanni. I was like, really? Because, you know, I would love to, you know, I would totally do a Screaming Females record if they asked me. And yeah. then he kind of went back to them and was like, you know, Joe would love to put out your band. He just isn't asking you because he thinks it's cool that you guys are putting out your own records. Um, and that... Um, so that started the conversation, but the conversation then kind of stopped when I was like, let's do this. And they were like, okay, cool. We're going to think about it. And then they thought about it and they were like, you know what? I think we still want to put it out ourselves. Like, thanks for the offer. We were really excited. We thought about it a lot. And I think we actually still want to do our own records. We think that's a really cool thing. And I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because you guys were doing a great job doing your own records. Um, and then this gets to that leveling up of the label. So I went down to see them at a show in DC. Like I just drove down to see them, um, which is when they told me that. So I went down to DC and I was like, Hey, have you guys thought about that? You were on tour. They were on tour for like a whole month, maybe more. They were on some long tour. And I was like, they probably thought about it by now. So I was like, hey, have you guys had any thoughts on this? And that's when they said, yeah, I think we're going to like do it our own, on, do it ourselves. Thank you. Like, and you know, that was that. And then I told Jared, I was like, you know, we never really formally discussed this. We never, I never really pitched you anything. We never really talked about what it would be like doing a record together. So even if you thought about it, like, can I have a chance to kind of like pitch you on doing the record, you know? And he was right. like, yeah, of course. And so that night um, we were playing like chess or something really weird. We were doing mm-hmm. something. We were, the guy's house we were staying at had like, maybe we were playing poker, but we were playing with like bottle caps. We were doing, we were playing something weird and everyone, everyone went to bed besides me and chair. And I was like, okay maybe now's a good time, you know, to do this like pitching thing. And so I just kind of went for it and I told him, I was like, cause I, I, I thought, and I thought about it in the car again, I'd taken my own car. So we were traveling separately and I was like, I, I don't know what to really tell them. Cause I was like, the truth is I am just going to do the exact same things that they do. I'm just going to make their records exist and then they can sell them at shows. Um, but I sort of thought about these things I could, that a label could offer. And I kind right. of offered them all. I was like, you know what? Here's things, some things you can't do yourself, like real distribution where you're really promoting records in stores and doing posters, yep. like real p- publicity, like a publicist, which at the time, it's funny. Now a publicist is like this thing that every band has at the time. It was really, really unheard of. We weren't, we, we weren't like, no, that that's big level. It. That's, that's stepping into a different level of, world of of labels and and for that size and what you were doing yeah that's a pretty big difference yeah especially in 2007 the idea of hiring a publicist to work a record like that didn't make sense so i was like you know a publicist we can do a radio campaign we can do all these things that you would get not just even at like a label like gern blanstein but a label a level up from that like 
Yeah, we, that's that's we, that's when you start talking about the matadors of the world. Right. We were like, so I was like, you know what? You guys are that good. You you will one day be on a label like that. Why don't we just be that label? And that was kind of my pitch. Um, and then the next day, I kept hanging out with them on tour. We were in Baltimore, and again, we took two separate cars. Um, or I took I took my my car. They took a van, and we were eating like crab cakes. I, I was the only one eating. Actually, they probably didn't even eat crab cakes. I was like <laughs> crab cakes at the mall, and so we yeah. were there. I was getting like crab cakes with them and talking and they were like, you know what? We thought about what you said and we're going to do it. And I was like, Oh my God, like, Holy shit. You know? Um, yeah. Okay. And that was the really a big moment that changed everything because then I'm like driving home and I'm like, okay, I don't know anything about publicists, about radio, about promoting records to stores, about, distribution. Um, so I'm going to have to learn it all. Like I'm going to have to figure out how to do all that stuff and how to actually offer that stuff, um, to them. But I feel like I actually also have a band that if I do that stuff, it'll actually work. Cause I, 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 again, it's funny cause now like a band will start and like at their first show, they're like figuring out who the publicist is going to be for the record. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. and, I'm not, and, and I'm not saying that it's a dig against the band. That's just the way the world, like the, the, the entire, like the, the, the that, that's how this world of music. Yeah. There's, it's moved, it's moved very quickly. There's, there's, and for better or worse, and we, we can parse this later if we want, but, but it, it, there's a jump in this, like, okay, who, how, what are we, who's working this record? How right. are we getting it out there? Do we need a manager right now? Correct. This booking yeah. agents talking to us, et cetera. Yeah. But, and, and also like what a publicist actually does now is very different than what a publicist was doing in 2007. Yes. So, I mean, the industry's flipped over. It's very different. Yeah. It's just a whole different thing. And so there were just all these questions, but it did feel to me where I was like, I really was, I was like, if this band signed to matter, or if this band signed to sub pop, if this band, you know, signed to merge or something, if this band signed mm-hmm. to rock stars, what would those labels do? They'd hire them a publicist and the publicist would actually give return on investment for lack of a better word. They would do a radio thing and that radio thing would actually somehow return. I don't know how that stuff works, but I know that it would for a band that is like this. So I will just start figuring it out. Um, and that was really the beginning of like the Don Giovanni that people know today. You know, it's funny, like you guys both are probably weirdly more familiar with like the first 28 releases, you know, than the next like a hundred to next 200 releases. We're at about 230. I'm scheduling 230 right now. That's and awesome. Funny because wow. a lot of people just think of these first 28. Um, and that's cool. I think that's great. But it's like, so, but it's like, really that was like this dividing line and, and a lot of ethos like carried over. Like a, there's a lot of things that I do now. In fact, there's more things that I do now that are similar to what I was doing for those first 28 releases than things I do differently. Um, but that was the moment I'm like, I guess I have to become the label that this band deserves. You know, I, I can't just be that old label I have to become the label for a band like this or I'll like lose this band and I should lose this band. I, it's like, they were letting me work with this great record. I need yeah. to become a label like that and, or just like stop. Yeah. And you know, I've had that feeling a bunch of times, including with, with their 
records they've brought me over the years where I'm like, damn, I have to like be the label for this record. And if not, they should find another label for it, you know? And so bands like them have just really pushed me over the years to, to figure out how to do new things and grow the label. That was that, that was that first really big push. So it's a good record to talk about on the podcast. So you mentioned it a few times throughout that story. Thanks for filling us in on all of that. That was awesome. Yeah, um, sorry, that's a long window. No, no, it's great. I love it. Um, but it, yo, it was the best way to answer the w- tell us about Don Giovanni. I think we learned a lot. You know, yeah, exactly. It wasn't exactly one and a half minutes, but you know, you got yeah, it. Sorry. Um, no, no. Um, uh, but you mentioned a few times, you know, that you knew there was something about screaming females that you really, like, you knew that they would kind of they deserve this like amount of success and they would get there eventually. Like you had to be the label. I'm curious about like, what did you see in them? Like from that really early stage, like why, why did you feel that way about them? That's a really interesting question. Um, Cause I mean, you come in touch with so many bands, you know, at that point, you know, and since then, you know, I'm, I'm curious kind of what stood out about them to you. It's interesting to say the biggest thing that stood out to them was actually not their stood out for from them. Like to me was actually not their music, but it was kind of their work ethic and the way they approached their band at the time. Um, but the truth is also the way I, I've always done the label has a lot more to do with, with people than with what, you know, songs sound like, you know, I've always kind of worked with people that I like and believe in the people and then they can turn in to me, whatever they want to turn in, whether it's like, sometimes it's a book, you're not even like a record. Sure. (laughs) Sure. 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 But that's not to say that it's about the work ethic. A lot of times the people I know that I, I love the person, they have a bad work ethic, but I love the person. I love the art they're making. But screaming females had, had a work ethic, which felt like if I put the work in, they were going to put the work in. Um, and like they were, they would practice like, you know, I remember hearing these stories about a band like black flag practicing like six hours a day, you know, but I never encountered bands like that. Like most of the bands that I was working with and encountered, they were practicing like once a week at most, you know, maybe less, unless they were writing the album and they practice a lot for the album. Right. <laughs> Streaming females would practice like three hours a day, like every day back like it was and they still do like things like yeah. that it's like, you know they would meticulously plan these things um and yeah the music was in, was incredible but i feel like there's so many bands you and i can talk about with incredible music that didn't go anywhere yeah. and a lot of times what you can point to for why is like well they didn't really try to go anywhere like they, they thought the music themselves, the thought the music itself would, would carry them and speak for itself. And, and yeah. that's all that it needs. Yo, and it's, unfortunate that doesn't, it's unfortunate that doesn't happen. It's unfortunately oh. the way the world works is that doesn't happen, you know? Yep. Yo, so that's, I, I, I want to dig on that for a second because yeah. I, I think given uh, your experience with label and, you know, the, the duration, you know, the length of the time you've been involved with music at large, this is a conversation I hear in a lot of different spectrums is like, well, one, what does a label do? But we can let's put that one aside because I, I maybe we'll get there. But two, what makes one band succeed and another not? And I think you just nailed it is that competency matters and being good and creative and making excellent art matters a lot. 
But then that work ethic component, are you willing to put in the time that it takes? And are you willing to endure that, you know, <clears throat> it's you almost for every band. And, and I won't, I'll say this, a lot of artists, there's some who get lucky and it, it goes much quicker, but sometimes you have to literally put in the time and effort and grind yeah. before you start to see success. And I mean, what you described, seeing that energy that this band had and that kind of the work ethic, it sounds like not only did it <clears throat> click a, a switch for you to go, oh, this is an artist I need to work with, but also it sounds like it inspired you to do more with the label. Is that right? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, before before then, the for the label, the way it was, was they'd have a great band and they would exist. They'd make a record and they usually break up, you know, by the time they made their full length, they would like break up. And that was the life cycle of a band. Right. And sometimes with a label as a whole, it was as dangerous as like an entire scene would break up at once. Like my band, Punchback and the Erks were just like all done at once, you know? And it was like, Oh, the whole label is done. (laughs) Um, you know, or something, you know, something like that would, would happen. And so, you know, it was, that was always, and that's what kills a lot of labels is they, you know, just like mine, I was in college when I started it. So you're working with all these college kids and what's the life life cycle of a college band. It's a four year life cycle, right? By the time they graduate college, no matter how big their band is, they're usually like, well, I just went to college and I got a degree, you know, in computer science. And no matter how popular my band is, I don't, I think I want to go like do computer science or, you know, or something like that. And so, the band breaks up um, and some bands stick around a little longer, usually when they went to school for other things. But a lot of times that's like the life cycle of a, of a band in college. Um, and so like I was in college, the bands I was listening to were in college and that's what, that's what was happening. And right. then there was this fundamental shift after that too. Like my bands don't really break up anymore. <laughs> you know, now I'm looking yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have catalog. I never had catalog. And so it's impossible. It's really hard to get a label moving when you don't have catalog. Cause it's That's like right. always just trying to, you know, create new things and start from scratch. And now all of a sudden, you know, like I have albums. I'm like, this is the fifth record from this band. This is the eighth record from this band. This is the third record from this band. And you can put that time and energy into, into like growing things slowly. Cause things grow very, very slowly. Like, the success Dream Females have had was far from overnight. <laughs> They've been doing this as I've been doing this 18 years. I think they've been doing this 15 years, you know, maybe right. 16 years. And so it wasn't this thing where it was like, wow, they were great. And then everyone loved them. It was like, they were great and no one cared for a really long time. And each album they did, a few more people cared. And now they've done 10 albums and a lot of people care, you know? And that's, that's the reality of it. And so it's that work ethic and saying, you know what, I think this band is going to be around for another album after this and maybe another one. And they're going to keep doing this. And I need to keep, I need to be here for them to keep, to keep doing it. And we're both kind of still pushing each other back and forth in that way. Like they challenged me by making an album like Rose Mountain. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to grow the label to this level. And then they made a record like all at once. And I was like, Oh my God. Okay. Like I have to do, you know, it's like, we, it, it does feel like we've just been pushing each other back and forth, challenging each other to, to grow together for the last, you know, um, what, 13 years we've been working. Yeah. That's yeah it's wild. You guys have been working together for that long. That's like, yeah. it's like unheard of at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, especially um, in thinking of the bands that like, 
you guys used to, you know, be a part of and that I was putting out before then where they'd be around for like one year and put out like two seven inches. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And then there'd be a band, if a band even got to a full length, it was like, whoa, <laughs> they made a full length, you know? I know. And I never thought I'd be working with bands that are putting out this many full lengths, but they're, but the, they're coming out of that same type of scene. That's what's weird. It's not, it's not like I like switched and started trying to find bands somewhere else. It's just right. Still, I, I yeah. things just kind of changed a bit and I started like one thing led to another and, but it's like, it's still actually very similar types of bands. It's just that they seem to stick around longer. For, and a part of it, I think so they had a label and a stable home to incentivize them to stick around, you know? Right. I mean, you stepped up your game. They stepped up theirs. I mean, it seemed like a reciprocal relationship. Yeah. You know, so. I think we really grew a lot together. We had, we had to like, I, I said this, I say this a lot too. And, when people you know when i talk about the label like bands like streaming females um really because they were like they were they're were, they were like the oldest child you know where i had to like you had to like make the rules you know and then the middle yep. of the youngest child <laughs> live with those rules. but like the first time someone's like hey can i borrow the car you're like oh, i don't know about they could borrow the car but then when you're establishing precedents right there. Right. And then, but then your younger brother, you already, they know what the rules are, you know, yep. because you want to go to the party and, you know, and like late at night and stuff. And so screaming females were kind of that for the label where like we'd get an offer to use a song in a commercial for the first time. And it was like, do we want to do this? Like, I don't want to do this. Do you guys want to do this? How does this even work? You know? And then by the time the next band comes around, and they're talking to me. I'm, I'm like a genius. I'm like, oh, I know how this all works. I can explain. <laughs> I, can, I can explain. You know, most favorite nations. Like, here's what we want to do. Um, but to the point, like, I'm literally a, I'm a professor. I, I of this. Like, I, I, I'm a professor of music industry, and I, I learned it all one piece of it. I never got a degree. And I never. I mean, I've read books on it. I guess by now. Yeah. But, you know really it was like one decision at a time I had to learn about how do I do this? And a lot of those things for the first time were through females. Yeah. So you took a step back before I wanted to take a further step back. You okay. said that you said that FID had kind of, you know, played matchmaker, um, introduced you guys to each other, but it seems like you were familiar with them already. So no, like we knew each other. No, we knew each other. He played matchmaker like with the album. Like, yeah, I, I yeah, knew, exactly. So, so like what was, if, I don't know if you remember the first time you saw them, but what was kind of your first, you know, um, experience seeing them or like, yeah, like, like the, like your if, radar? if this is the romantic comedy movie, when did you first catch their eye or <laughs> when did they first catch your eyes? I don't, yeah, I don't know when I first caught their eye, but I definitely know I used to like, it's really funny. Like I talk with them about this a lot today, how like, because they were these, like, they were like Mason, or it's not even, they were Mason Gross kids. It was really just Marissa was the mate. Like Jarrett went to school, I think for, um, I'll be so mad. I don't know this. I think it was something to do with farming though at, at Rutgers. I think he was in that college though. Oh yeah. That the Rutgers ag program is pretty I big. Ag, I think he was in the ag program. And Joe, you um, guys were all in New Brunswick at the time. Yeah. We were all in New Brunswick. Yeah. Um, and Marissa was at Mason Gross, but I would remember going to these shows and all these Mason Gross kids would come, which is funny. I'm for now friends with a lot of them, but I was like, all these art students, like, oh my God, like hate art students, you know, like, um, and they brought out this whole different crowd to like basement shows, which I remember at first being kind of like, okay, all the like Ergs fans are going to clear out all the Mason Gross kids are going to come in. Um, 
But then I think eventually it was just kind of like Ergs, Hunchback, and Three Females fans kind of like melded into one. But there was definitely some like xenophobia on my part. And I think I'm probably not the only one that was like xenophobic of this, like of the like Mason Gross crowd, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like quote unquote invading, you know, like the punk punk shows and stuff. Right. Um, The weird tribal nature of that stuff, even in a place as, you know, relatively small as New Brunswick is, Mm -hmm. is very interesting. It isn't. It's yeah. It's interesting, and it's kind of when it's it's absurd when you think about it. Like you say, because it's such a small scene. Yeah. And yet there was there was like the noise kids that would be at like Doors House, and then there'd be like the art kids at like Courtland Land, and there'd be like the hardcore kids at like um, what wherever it? they could find 30, a place where they weren't like, kicked yeah, out like, of. Thirty Hamilton, like that, yeah. house crossing the grease. It, it was like for such a small scene, it did feel like there was all these like insular pockets, and it'd be like, oh god those kids are coming. And it was really these like 15 person scenes, you know? Um, but I think it was also nice because the bands would play together a lot and then you would, there would be some spillover. And I think I want to say Ryan O'Connor, um, from Hellhole, like, um, and just a new Brunswick kid who was a friend of mine used to live above me. I think he was the first person that actually was like, yo, you should listen to Screaming Females. Because we were always like, man, they're crowds, man. I would always be like, okay, those kids are coming. I'm leaving the basement, you know? <laughs> and then right. I would come in for like the end of the song and I'd be like, okay, wow, this is sick. Like guitar shred. I did love, I mean, I've always been a big like fan of, you know, like guitar solos. So I was like, man, there's some sick guitar stuff. And I, I remember just being like, yeah, I, I think I thought they were like a, um, novelty is not the right word because i knew they were like a serious band i think i just felt like they were from this other world like i felt like they were it was like lightning bolt coming to town or something you know and i was right like, yeah, yeah yeah so you know i didn't think but so it was like yeah i'm not gonna really it's not really my thing you know at the time it wasn't at least um but then ryan o'connor i think was the first one to be like i think he was the one who was like yo you gotta like actually like listen to them they're like incredible and i was like okay like i trust you um and i did and they they it was funny they were actually instantly incredible like i remember when i put on baby teeth um instantly like the very first song on there um is incredible and then pretty quickly i was like okay now i want to see them live and it was funny like as soon as i kind of bought into the cd and then i went to see them live I started liking the crowd. I was like, Oh, these kids are cool. Like I like this crowd. Yeah. You get a different energy. Compare that energy. What do you, what did you like about the crowd? Um, much more diverse than a hardcore show. Um, yeah. still mostly white though at the time. Like sure, but at least sure. there was a lot more women in the crowd. Um, and they just like, like something I, I never liked about hardcore shows like I always liked the music, but I, it, it felt like there was this, like it all hard shows always felt like there was like this serious pressure to conform to like some type of, um, something. No, <laughs> which, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think there's many people who will disagree with you there. Yeah. And the something would change over the years. And that's, that was always irony. Like you have to keep up with these like trends. So you weren't like wearing the wrong thing, the wrong, I never liked that, you know, um, about hardcore shows. I always felt like, I wasn't the cool kid there, you know, not that, you know, I'm well, not- well, that's, that's the hard, that's the interesting part is that New Brunswick was such a mixed boat that, um, you know, the hardcore kids certainly had their own little niche carved out and, and, you know, it seems like it, it has for a long time, but, but essentially for, for someone who's not initiated, if you're hearing us talk about this, imagine there's a bunch of weird kids 
and a bunch of weird people in general. But there's one little cluster of weird people who kind of are like, yeah, 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 you guys are all weird, but not in our way. Our way is the cool way, and that's the weird we want. And like whatever your weird is, eh, you know. And that, I mean, Joe, you know, what you're describing almost parallels that. Like, because you're right, like there's so much that's like, hey, this is a group of people who all don't fit in. But then it's like you have to fit in with the right crowd who doesn't fit in. And, exactly. and it sounds like the crowd you're describing, you're, it was just like, oh, here's these these weirds, <laughs> all just doing weird stuff. <laughs> That's what I think was I was actually very comforting about it once I kind of like got over my own xenophobia about the crowd was it didn't – nobody at a Screaming Female show in New Brunswick in like 2006 was trying to be cool. There wasn't anyone that you're like, no, oh, this guy is trying to be the cool person. It was just like these people all know they're not cool and that actually makes them really cool. Whereas at every hardcore show, we would just – you could point out all the people that like thought they were the coolest guy there trying to be the coolest guy there. you know. And again, the music was still really good. But there were, it was just like I, I appreciated the vibe so much of like – it's funny. Everything I was like, afraid of about the crowd um, was actually what I ended up really coming to appreciate. And so I started kind of like – it was just – you know, I started going to those shows, you know um, – I would see them there. I mean, I guess I would see all the bands every time I could in New Brunswick, but including including them, you know. So, you know, um, let's kind of skip back to Power Move here. Sure. And focus in. You've already circled around and given us a good entry point. You could tell that things were getting a little more serious. They have an offer from Gurn. They have... that That was the Ergs. Oh, that's the ergs. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, for okay. screaming females, then w- with Power Move, what what was it that was going on that made you realize, hey, this ha- this is something that's significant. This is something where we're going to have to step our game up. Tell us about that era in general, and like what was going on with the band to the best of your your memory. So the the things going on were one they had released two albums already. Power Move was their third album. And again, we're talking about this world where the average life cycle of any band that I could like name at the time that wasn't like a quote unquote, like real band or well-established band was like, they would break up on their full length. You know, maybe they would have like two full lengths and break up on the second full length. You know, if they started with the full length or something, you know, it was just like they had two albums and they, felt like they were coming on this third and then the third album, they were playing all these songs off at live and the songs were really, really good. Like they had hits. Like there was like, they had like songs on their records that were like hits where I was like, this song is objectively a really good song, you know? Um, and I could play this for some stranger and I feel like they would appreciate it. Um, and they felt like they were a band that could play with anyone. They could totally play hardcore shows, but they could also yep. play with a band like, you know, Vicious when they came through, or they could play, could play with Hunchback, or they could play with right. Vivian Girls. Like they could, but they could also play with, like, you know, Trash Talk or something. Like, you could, they could just play with whoever was happening. What, what, they could play with, like, whatever was happening at the time, because they were just, like, a DIY philosophy um, and just playing really interesting, weird music. For sure. Um, and so 
it's funny. Like I, it wasn't this thing where I was like, I need to sign them because they're gonna be the biggest band in the entire world. It was more just like, this is the best band in New Brunswick right now. I want to work with them just like I wanted to work with the Ergs and mm-hmm. you know the Generics and whoever was like I felt like was the best band in New Brunswick at the time. Like it wasn't even so much this sense of like I, they're going to conquer the world. It was like I really want to work with this band, and the only way that I think I can do it is like they want to conquer the world and I need to like help them do that. But I was still just content, at least at the time, like just, I just wanted to work with them. But I was like, look, if you want to conquer the world, I may as well help you do it, you know, instead of, and then we can do it here. But the truth is like, I would have been just as happy if they just wanted to stick around playing New Brunswick. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Such a good they were just such a good band and they had like hits. They had like these songs that were just like, I was like, I want to be the one that puts this song out, you know? Um, and I think that's what it was. I was just like, I could, and I, and I, I mean, I, I guess I'm being a little facetious. Like I, could, I really could see a lot of potential in them. And I think it was cause they had these hit songs. They just had great, right. great songs. Um, and they had the, this work ethic where again, I was like, you know what, if I give this my all, I'm not going to, be disappointed like i'm giving it my all and they're not doing anything um you you know from a label perspective this is a weird thing but i've put out some records in my time and i've worked at different levels of it and all that but some bands can succeed as a touring act at least to a certain level based purely on uh work ethic and how much sweat equity they put in but when you work with a band and I luckily, you know, I, I feel like I haven't done that very much. Most of the bands I've worked with, I've at least felt invested and really appreciated the music they were creating and, and felt like, wow, this is, this is valuable. This is valid. This is good. But, but, you know, there have been a few bands I've seen or worked with even kind of loosely. And it's been like, uh, you know, you work really hard and that's going to take you far enough. And like, you've, you've put the go in, but I, I also think, you gotta have tracks. Yep. Yeah. You know, you gotta have songs that people respond to. And, you know, it honestly doesn't matter whether it's 500 cap room, a VFW hall, a bar or a basement. Music is going to get people to respond when you have that kind of power. And I mean, you know, when we talk about power move on varying levels, the first song on the album, that's just a that's a hit that's a track no that, no, that was a song that bell was, that was a song that like I remember when i heard it, i was like oh my god i want to put out this next record they had like yep. a, they wrote like a hit song yeah. <laughs> you know um and that was obviously our choice you know we were it was like when we started agreeing there was no like what should we use for that first song we you know right we, you know it was like that's gonna be bell like that's the one that we're gonna start you know, telling people to like, listen to, I guess, I guess like a quote unquote, I don't know if we use the word singles the way we use it now. So I can't remember what we would have called it, but like sure. the, the MP3 we're going to put on our website. <laughs> right. <laughs> this oh. is the lead. This is, this is, right. this is, uh, we're, we're putting our best foot forward and it's this song. It's yep. Bell. There was no, there wasn't like, I wonder what it should be. Yeah. They had this like hit song. Um, yeah. And I was like, man, I want to be the one that works for them on it. You know? And so, yeah, exactly. They just had tracks. Did you have any involvement in the uh, the recording process at all, or was it kind of? Did you hear it? You know, when it all finished up. 
Um, for the first yeah, time. Yeah, no, I mean, I my involvement in stuff like that is it's always like very hand like there unless a band wants me to kind of actually come in and be a producer, they really want me my input in there. I I try to be very hands off and let artists figure that out. So I mean, my involvement, I, I hung around, you know, I I I mean, friends with Eric who recorded it and stuff, and I I um enjoy like spending time there but it was sort of like their decisions you know we discussed it like i think i think recording at hunt was actually just like a foregone conclusion mm-hmm. yeah we discuss a lot of things at end involving like art and everything and layout but I mean, ultimately i leave it up to artists and let you know um i think that's what, what makes they're, they're good artists it's like i'm that's quite literally what they are so why am i gonna like come in no, for sure for sure there? So I'm, it's more helping them. Like, here's some ideas. Here's some stuff to work with. But they had they had a lot of that figured out already. Um, yeah, I imagine they did. I, I I just meant you know it seems like this was, you know, you were planning on level leveling up. You know, as they were leveling up, right? You right. Know, like you were you wanted to match that energy. So I was just curious, like how not not necessarily like you know sitting in the recording studio, you know, giving notes, <laughs> but like, but like, you know, let's do that one again, guys. Come yeah, on. Exactly. <laughs> like, but more just like how, uh, it seems like there must've, you must've felt just felt personal pressure, you know, to, to, to make sure that, you know, things were, I think so. Cool. I think there was this sense that there was this sense of like, is this going to come out as good as I'm hearing it in my head? You know, like I've heard them play these songs a bunch now what are they going to sound like record? Are they going to be good? Are these going to be something I'm embarrassed to play for people? Or even though I like, you know, and, but at the same time, it was like this trust. It was, again, it was like, this is what they do. They're a really good band. They'll think they'll record it. Well, um, and I went to the studio as much as they let me, I can't remember how many days I was there or not, you know, but sure, I was like, only sure. one to come by, you know, they, they recorded in Milltown and I was just like, or maybe Millstone. I forget one of the two of those. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> um, yeah they're right near each like yeah i think i forget if it was milltone millstone or milltown but it recorded at hunt the old hunt studio um and yeah i just remember being really excited and it, they spent like five i don't remember how many days they spent they would definitely know but it, it felt like also like most of the records we'd made by then were in this like three-day process where you'd show up on a friday usually at chris pierce's house Yep. <laughs> you know, record the whole thing on Saturday and then spend Sunday mixing it and then you would leave with a finished record. And this was like I don't know, maybe they spent like a week. I don't know. I don't and I, I mean Marissa worked at the studio as an intern and so I feel like they probably actually spent like more time even then like going back and but I just was like, Wow, they're spending like a ton of time and this is like a real rock band, like yeah. you know, everything so it did. It felt like they were giving that attention and um and yeah. So, so I wanted to ask based on kind of what you just said there, um, you had a familiarity with these songs before they recorded the record. Do you think, and I mean, I have a lean here because one of the things that I think jumps out about power move is that there's a lot of energy on that record. And do you think they were able to capture that with the recording? Was there anything that you're like, that surprised you either, you know, like, Oh, you know, like uh, probably largely positive, but like, do you feel as though what you remembered, the feeling you had when you heard it off the, the recording, you're like, well, yeah, you got it. Um, 
I mean, I remember it sounding fantastic at the time. I, I, yeah. I remember not really. I'm never. I'm never very critical of things once the artist turns them in. That's part of my like philosophy towards running a label. Again, is like which is a good thing. Knowing, I hope it is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like I said, it's got me pretty far, and artists seem to like working with me. But I, it's it's again, it's like my feedback to artists. Like I still, it's not, I'm not. It's not like I don't talk to them. I talk to them a lot about making records. But a lot of what we talk about is like, is this the record that you wanted to make? Yes. You know, not like, is this the record I wanted you to make? Is this yep. how I get the sound? But sometimes they'll, you know, sometimes they'll complain. You know what? I wish I had more time. I wish we had done yep. this. This is, you know, that's the kind of thing we can discuss. Like, is this the record you wanted to make? Um, is sort of the question that you know because they'll always ask me do you like it I'm like, of course i like it this is right it's record you want to make right like of course then i then of course i like it well so um, here's here's my my parse then for there because yeah. i like that um and you don't have to get specific this is our our don giovanni uh no i don't keep i, I tell all i don't good people, good, good. let's keep you know we can leave names out because i i don't feel fair doing this but i've worked with bands who immediately following the recording and this is one of the saddest it's only happened a couple times immediately following recording they finish they get the the master back they get it back they're like hey we don't like this record has that ever happened to you oh yeah many i mean many times how do you deal with that what have you done um in one case i they let them re-record the entire record um we've had records re-recorded though entirely um but there's a record. This is an early record. You guys don't know, don't, might not realize this, but the, sure. the, the Dustheads full length was recorded twice. The version on the CD uh, collection is not the same as the version on the vinyl. Um, really they, interesting. They re-recorded the entire thing. They hated the first, re- and they should have hated the first recording. It wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> well, but, and that's that's yeah. sort of one of those things because as we're talking, like, like I I, I am also a huge believer, like. I can have my personal feelings and if somebody wants my criticism, I'm happy to offer them. But if what you went into the studio as the artist and what you came out with was what you intended and what you want, that's what it should be. Like, yeah. you know, that's, that's, there's, you know, and, and people can feel ways about that, but you made what you wanted to make. Fantastic. That's, here we are. This is the process. Yeah. I mean, I think you, the answer is, I think usually these problems that artists have when they come out and they don't like something, it's, they're not like tear down, like full tear downs. Yep. They're like, you know what? I, it's like, and it's like, you know, what? let's just spend a couple hundred dollars, go back and fix the vocal or go back and fix it. Is it just like, you know, the Dustheads one was also something where it was just like they like they hated the whole thing and they because you know and they were like I want to re-record and they re-recording sounded so much better and it, it was um and it wasn't like an expensive re-recording or anything either it was just right like, and so but usually it's like you know what let's just taper one more day let's just go back and remix it let's have a different person a lot of these things it's like mixing is where they have issues or it, it's things that can be fixed but yeah it ha- it happens actually probably more often than you think. And it's not a, it, it, um, and again, I feel like that's what I'm, that's what I try to be there for is, you know, a solution. And the solution doesn't always involve money because money's, you know, the label's still very much run on a budget. Yes. Um, And, but there is still like these like solutions, like what can we do? What can we do about this? If you're not happy with it. Um, 
And, you know, I, I hope, I hope I know all the answers to these questions. Cause I, I do try to make, I, I want to create an environment where if you're an artist, you don't mind telling me that you're not happy about, about something, you know? Um, so I hope I know when artists aren't happy with one of their records. Cause then it's like, maybe there's a chance we can do something about it. There isn't always, sometimes it's, sometimes it's just like, look, there's nothing we can do about, I can do about this. That's right. You can do about this. Um, but it, it just depends. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, uh, we didn't ask this, but based on what you know, were there, experience, how significantly do you think Power Move affected, you know, for lack of a better term, their career, the the, the trajectory of Screaming Females? Well, it was their first record to, like, really put them on the – for most people, that's their first, you know, record on the map, um, which, again, I'm proud of feeling that way because I think we did all these things – for the record, like I said, like press and radio and, you know, we had like a radio version. We had like a radio promo of this record. Things that's funny. Cause it was like this blip where we don't do that now. We, we didn't do it before because now right. it doesn't make sense for different reasons, but that would like actually made sense to make like 500, you know, different version C's to send to like radio and press, you know, yeah. Yeah. now you wouldn't, now you would, it would all be digital. Um, so we, it like, it really did like put it on the map in a lot of ways. Um, they started getting, you know, they got like New York times for talking about screaming females. We had, we had this reporter like come to New Brunswick to stay with me. Like he stayed overnight at my shitty place in Edison <laughs> to just like come to a screaming female show and like cover them like for two days straight and like write about them for spin. Um, wow. And things like that, like, which is funny because that just doesn't happen anymore, you know, like, um, and he, he's not a music journalist anymore either. Like his name's Brian Rafferty and he like writes, I still keep in touch with him. He writes sure. and stuff and he writes about film mostly. Um, really nice guy, but there used to be enough money that you could be a music journalist <laughs> and, yep. you know, and, before times. Yeah. It was like this interesting time. So it was like, we were like, wow, like this is amazing. There's like a reporter coming out to New Brunswick to cover <laughs> screaming females, you know, like, um, and so, yeah, it was like a, probably a huge deal and it, and it made the next record even easier. I think the next record got even more attention and then the one after that got even more. Then they went to record Steve Albini for the one. It's like mm-hmm. things just kind of kept, <coughs> kept moving forward. Each record we get together and we sort of talk about like, how can we move things forward? What can we do differently? You know? Um, and we do, we kind of go into each record actively. Like the last record we had a billboard in Philadelphia for the record. You know, there's yeah. always where it's like what can we do that is different that we've never done and it gets harder with each record like i said we're always kind of challenging ourselves like i'm not sure what the plan will be for the next record um for their and or us like my and or there and like they spent like a ton of time in the studio you know they went to like record with a metal producer and right like 10 days in the studio you know maybe more they might spend two weeks i don't know in the studio like um and so it is it's always this question of like upping the ante and trying to just like do things like that with each other. And so I don't know what's next. Um, would you ever have imagined 11 years ago that, you know, that record would have taken you and them on that kind of journey. It's pretty amazing. No, I, I mean, I really, I really wouldn't. Um, and there's been a few records like that from that, you know, I, I, this Laura Stevenson record we're reissuing too. We just, we got it remastered like Abbey road studios, like for half speed, you know, I never thought I'd be 
and I'm not even a Beatles fan. I just never thought he would <laughs> a record at like the most famous, like expensive recording studio in the world on a reissue of a, you know, 10 year old record. And it's like, and the plan is we'll do similar things like that for screen females. And they're just not ready yeah. to do that yet. Um, That's cool. And it's like, it's kind of a, it is, it's been a crazy, amazing journey. Okay. I mean, this connects, but long-term, and I mean, we've talked about a lot of the direct things and some of the way it's changed. How did this impact Don Giovanni as a label going out to the world? Like, like, do you think this is, you know, we talked about the ergs already and I think they certainly helped put Don Giovanni on the map. I know for me, when power move came out, I saw it everywhere, you know, like, like, I don't think I've ever talked to you about this or even mentioned it. You know, we've talked a few times, but like the way you guys promoted this record was extensive, thorough, and really well done, um, especially at a time when, when it was really hit or miss on that kind of thing uh, with, with records of the silk. How did this impact the label and the business you were doing and how you were doing business from there? Well, I'm glad you you said what you just said, because I think part of that was actually the point. It was this sense of like, if we can push this record really hard enough, it'll kind of pay off more than just for this record. But like the other things we do now, it'll solidify like Don Giovanni as a label that people might want to check out the next record, you know? Um, And so I think it had a huge impact in that way. Like, I think this was a lot of people's first entry point, outside of like the maximum rock and roll and razor cake scene where the herbs were huge. Right. Um, but this was like spin magazine back when people read it or like mm-hmm. you know, things like that, or um, New York times, or we were just getting attention and press. And again, yeah, I would, I, I remember like, like um, I would go to Princeton record exchange. I've been going to Princeton record exchange for like 20 years, maybe more. Right. Um, <laughs> Every week, even when I didn't live here, I would like find a way to get there at least once a month. (laughs) Crazy for like years. Um, And I would kind of beg them to like consign my records, you know, like, or or maybe they'd buy them wholesale. Usually eventually after I did enough, they would at least buy them wholesale. And then power move. I remember I went there and they like had it. I was like, you guys have like, you guys have this, like you already, it was like just out like, like with their new releases. Um, And, it was like, wow, it was, it was, it was a big deal for me too. It was like just getting the label attention in all these places, people that were like, they saw it as the kind of record they had to actually order from their distributor because it was getting enough press as opposed to like the guy coming in and hoping they take some and then coming to check on it and they sold them, you know, and curmudgeon was still around. I remember too. This was like near the, near oh, the end. Oh yeah, that's right. But I remember Bill telling me that, he, that we were selling more, records than like than um chunksa and chunksa oh, was wow. like a perennial big new jersey label wise like and i think it was they were just sell like tons of copies of like hopeless romantic and you mm-hmm. know like yeah the bouncing, bouncing souls back catalog yeah there were tons of those records always and that was like and it was like yeah you guys are actually selling even more than those i was like really like holy shit like <laughs> it was. It was like it meant a lot of people were just like um finding the label through that and it, and it led directly I, I we just did this long podcast series on laura stevenson so it's still fresh on my mind mm-hmm. on sit resist and power move factored into that 
story a lot because it was, that was sort of the way when I went to Laura and it was like, Laura, like you need a real label. Look what we did for power move, you know, and it mm-hmm. they yeah. recorded at hunt studio because three people's recorded there. And we hired some of the same people that worked on power move. And it was like, wow, now we almost have like a system for how the label can, can do stuff, you know? Um, and it was the same Laura too, has an incredible work ethic. And it's like, I think when you see someone with a strong work ethic, making good songs, um, a lot of people have one or the other, but when you see mm-hmm. both, it's like, damn, man, this is something that I want to work hard. It makes you want to work hard, you know, Yeah. with them. And so we had a huge impact on how we do things. True. For sure. So I think I have one or two more questions for you. Um, yeah. The next one is I know it's going to be tough because I know, you know, the screaming females are kind of, you know, you talked about them, like you've had, you know, this really long relationship and all of this, where does this record fall for you in terms of, you know, your favorite screaming females material personally? I know that it obviously has, you know, uh, like you have a special relationship with this record because of the impact it had on the label, um, and also the band, but you know, I guess in your like kind of hierarchy of screaming females material, where does this, where does this fall for you? Or, you know, what does it mean to you? I guess. That's a great question. And I mean, it means a ton to me for a few reasons. Like, I mean, and I'm not just saying this, like I'm every band and every artist on the label really is like a friend at some level. Like it's just the way I run the label. I'm not really signing strangers. I'm like, usually know people first. So it's like, I, I just text and hang out with like all the artists on the label. Like at some level but an important way to 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 run an independent label i think if you're not doing that you're doing something wrong yeah i think it's really important because i mean it's because they're all part of the same kind of scene and community so we're just usually texting about the same type of things Mm -hmm. but screaming females i have just didn't even they're like my best friends you know like outside outside of the label i don't mean in the label it's like outside of the label like i i I hung out with marissa today I, i hang out with marissa She's like by every day, you know, I yeah. can't like literally like I, you know, and Jarrett does work at my, on my mom's house for her and stuff like that. And it's like, they're like, so, I mean, and that all started here. So they're, they're really special like people to me. Um, but that makes the record so much harder to even think about. It's just like music, you know, it's like, like when I, I, have a, I have a five and a half year old, like when she makes art, every piece of art she makes is like the most incredible thing I've ever seen, you know? <laughs> And I'm not, I, have, I mean, you, have you been able to throw any of it away yet? Not yet. And I keep being like, at some point I'm going to have to throw this away, but I, 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 I have can't. several boxes of my <laughs> six year old's art and it is, it's, uh, it's not, it's excruciating. Yeah. I just, I know I'm like, I can't throw it away, but I'm also <laughs> like, and sometimes she's just gluing like, you know, like a puffy thing to an old paper towel roll or, and I'm like, yep. I feel and drawing eyes on it. And I'm like, I can't get rid of even this, you know? No, no, no. <laughs> so, but the point is that actually is, a, then you understand as well as I do. That's what these streaming females records are like to me at this, at this level where I'm like, these people that I love made this thing. Um, so what's actually weird is then what that weirdly means for me is like my favorite records personally are kind of the ones they made before I started working with them, which oh, are okay. probably objectively they're like worst 
records in a lot of ways. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, they, they, like they, one, they self-recorded, and one they recorded with with buckets, but intentionally did nothing. They were just like record us live. Like they were just like just do like a flat recording. And yet, I find those two to be so endearing, and I listen to them all the time. Um, and I think, and again, we actually eventually like took them over. Like, we pressed them now, but and we and we have for since almost power move when we start with dg31 was baby teeth yep and i think dg37 was the tv reissue i'm trying to recall um but and i i'm not i do not have these in front of me um Mm -hmm. so i'm trying to recall but um but it's like i find those ones really special in this way where it's like before i even was working with them i I go i just takes me back to these like new brunswick shows but then each record they turn in i listen to like obsessively you know in this other way where i'm like in awe of it um but so power move is always going to be special too because it was like this first thing that was like mine Mm -hmm. um like i worked with them on this record these are my screaming female songs you know (laughs) like you know what i mean when i say mine of course not mine but it was like the sense of like this is really special um but for me i actually get this get this question a lot about like picking my favorite from your females record and so for me though from when i met them from before power move i was like you guys have to make a live record like you're the kind of band that mm-hmm. should make a live record um and they were like that's ridiculous we don't want to do it and i was begging them to do that for years and after knowing them for about maybe six six years um it's the same thing. It was a pitch. I was like, what if instead of just making a live record, we hire Steve Albini and we spend two days at Maxwell's making like a live album. Um, and that piqued their interest. And then Maxwell's closed. And so we asked Steve where we could do it in Chicago. And he suggested the hideout, which was like okay. Chicago, which is Chicago's version of Maxwell's. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so live with the hideout is going to be a really special record for me always because it documents this thing that I always was like trying to document. And it was a real, that was a big, that was like this record where I was like, this is my idea. You know, I want to see this happen. I've been trying to do that for years. And I think they're just a fantastic live band. It's just a great document. I want that. Now I'm trying to get them to make another live record and it's like pulling teeth all over again. (laughs) Um, I need to figure out an angle to get them to now that's been so many years, make another one. Um, so that's a special one for me, for sure, the live record. But it's funny, they're special. All Each one has their own things I like think about. Yeah. This was the uh, pick your child uh, question. So you, you did very well. You <laughs> yeah, navigated you well. it well. And I actually, Thank usually you. when people are asked that kind of question, it can feel, but you, you answered it with such sincerity. And, and you gave an answer, which is always the big one. So thank you so much. Of course, yeah. Um, Pete. What else do you have on this? Do we got any other deep, deep thoughts here? Because I have some, some random questions for us to kind of end with just to, to lighten the mood, loosen it up, because I think we're going to have to have Joe back on. I have a feeling we're going to end up doing quite a few uh, releases that he's been involved in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll keep it short, but um, the one thing that came to my mind. So Joe, one of the things we talked about in the, the episode was, you know, how we would even classify screaming females. We talked about whether they're a punk band or not. Yep. How would you describe screaming females for someone who has like no affiliation with punk hardcore, you know, any of the things that we all grew up, you know, familiar with? 
I, I actually think that's an easy question. I would just, I've always said they were a punk band from, I, I think every band I work with is actually a punk band. Like, um, and I'm not just, I don't mean like in a, um, every band's got a little punk. It's like, I, I sure. think the label still really only works with bands that operate like punk bands. Like, I, I don't know. Um, some of them might not sound like conventionally punk, but it's like they all operate on a very serious punk, you know, ethos, whether it's like someone sure. like May who does more mother or Laura Stevenson is making folky stuff or Nango is doing Samus or streaming females. Like they all are actually like way, they're way more punk operating than a lot of bands that might like sound ostensibly more punk. And then they actually have like a lot of infrastructure and, you know, management and things like that behind them. And so screen females are very much a punk band. Sure. Cool. Cool. Bob, what do you got? Okay. So Joe, I think this is what we're going to do when we do these bonus episodes. (laughs) Okay. Um, Since we started, I thought of 10 random questions. Oh boy. Lightning round. Lightning round. And they're not, they're nothing, nothing heavy, but you know, they might, you know, some might go quick. Some might go a little long, but um, I'm going to ask you these questions. Pete, you were also on the docket today, but in the future, me and you will make <laughs> these questions together. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Joe, for the record, I haven't heard these. No, okay. this is the, I made these up as we were sitting here. Um, all right. And Joe, you go first, Pete, you go second. Apple, banana, or orange. Pick one. Uh, ah, orange. Banana. Okay. Mountains or beach and why? Mountains or beach and why? Mountains, because you're more likely to die on the mountains. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Beach, uh, because I love swimming in the ocean, and I don't know. I think it's fun. Okay. Here's where we get a little. That would would be just. uh, Blasphemy. I I know. Yeah, it would be blasphemy. Move to Morris County. Right. All right. Tell me one good thing about Trenton. Well, Trenton makes and the world takes. Oh, that's true. But I also, lo- I love Trenton. I'm like, I mean, I am, the, you count Hamilton and you count the Metro Trenton, like Hamilton. Yeah, let's count Metro Trenton because I do. Oh, Hamilton, Hamilton's got some redeeming qualities. You got AMC Hamilton, you got Red, White, and Blue, and Ewing. Or the Red, Hamilton. White, and Blue, and Ewing is incredible. Worth yeah, the drive so, from the shore. But also, yeah, Ham- I, I love Trenton. Trenton. And also, Trenton makes the world takes. Uh, Trenton makes the world takes. Both the saying and the sign across the bridge. Yes. Fantastic. And, and, yeah, and the mouthpiece uh, album with the photos. That's right, the Face <laughs> Tomorrow record. Pete, yeah, tell me one good thing about Trenton. Joe Joe got everything. I have nothing to add. <laughs> yeah, I think, ah. I, did. I think I did the complete Trenton. Yeah. I really did. Um, oh, you know what? They actually have some good pizza places out there. And I won't reveal the names, but there's. I believe they do a good mustard pie at one of those spots, which mustard sounds weird, pie. but is excellent. Oh, I believe, I believe it. Okay, Is leading like mustard, in mustard with the cheese. Yeah, which sounds crazy, but Pete Wild. will go soon. Okay. Yeah, let's go. Okay, Joe, meet up with us. Um, I'm in. I live very close. Great. What is the last thing you ate? Um, I it just I was at Wawa before this. I had like a peach iced tea and some chips and a cookie. It was really gross. It's really gross. I wish you didn't ask me that, Pete. <laughs> My wife made some homemade ramen. It was delicious. <laughs> Wow, yeah, Pete won that round. Yeah. Um, if you had a pet bird, what would its name be? Peter for Peter Sandful because he has uh, he had two pet uh, parrots. All right. And I'm going to name it Frank. Frank. Yeah, Frank the bird. Uh, strangely enough, a friend of mine, Grady, 
uh, and his mom just got a new pet pig who is named Frank. Yeah, I think Frank is like a perfect animal name. Like a an animal, animal name, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what color is your bedroom painted? White, but well, off white, off white. Okay. I have a lot of art. I keep, I'm a more of an art person than a wall painting person. Ooh, okay. I'm going to put a pin in that and ask something. But Pete, what color is your bedroom painted? White, but I, I don't even know if it's off white or white. Yeah. It's, it's definitely white. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the white that my entire house is painted, which is quite white inside, is actually like called something like off gray but it's as yeah, white exactly. as it's as white as white can be so that might, um, be the, that might be the color of my whole house actually also i haven't painted the walls yet and i feel like it is that off gray that's basically just white yeah okay so what is what how many how much art do you have hanging in your bedroom in the bedroom i have two large pieces but in, i have a lot of art in my house i'm a, a art collector i guess that sounds really pretentious i have a lot of art you would have art. Art art can mean a lot of things. So um, I'm curious. About, okay, this is for a future episode. I'm, I got to move forward. <laughs> if you retire, where would you like to live? It's a really good question. Part of me wants to just say Jersey Shore, mm. but I've been You're just pandering to us at that point. I know. Well, I've been getting into like lakes lately because I was living in Michigan. I was really liking lake life. It's different than shore life. It like, is. Finger Lake, maybe Finger Lakes is a good oh, medium. That's a really, that's a good medium. Okay, yeah, good answer. Uh, Pete, if you retire, where would you like to live? Um, I'm going to stick with the Jersey Shore. Fuck it. <laughs> Stay, <laughs> I'm staying here. I'm not moving. Love to hear it. All right. Um, last record you listened to, front to back. Oh God, that's something like I was about to get up and check. Please yeah, do. That's tough. Yeah, we're getting live, Pete. While he's doing that, what's your answer? Um. I listened to the Chills album Soft Bomb. Oh, okay. While we were having dinner. I listened to Don Edwards live with the White Elephant. You'll have to look it up. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I love that. Yep. Okay. Um, We've only got two more. Favorite childhood birthday party memory. And if you didn't have parties, just your favorite childhood birthday memory. I did have a birthday party, and I want to say – sixth or seventh grade where we all played like we played like a giant game of magic the gathering like we sat and played like a 12 player like in a circle game of magic the gathering we did i did it at the comic shop oh that sounds awesome wow it was it was uh also probably really pathetic but it was awesome too, so. <laughs> i think it's probably peak and and given your age relative to that um, you probably were dealing with some pretty what would now be expensive uh, cards. So I've learned I've learned that I've learned that I was dealing with some extremely expensive cards that I wish I should have saved. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't uh, throw them away, but I, I remember I, I, I do remember I sold them to some kid at school, and he gave me like thirty bucks, and yep. I'm like, holy shit, thirty bucks! <laughs> I'm you rich. Know? Yeah, that was big money at the time. Yeah, probably three thousand dollars worth of cards. <laughs> Very likely, Pete. Favorite b- childhood birthday memory. I don't remember how old I was. It was probably fifth or sixth grade, but there was a girl that I had a crush on and it turned out she had a crush on me. And we, it was, it's, it kind of seems like the, 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 you know, kind of courting that you talked about Joe, where like Fid was, you know, making yeah. intro and talking to the other person and match. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was going on with my friend and somehow I ended up on the phone with her and she was like, I like you too. So it was like this very Whoa. like, innocent like 
we hadn't even talked to each other in person really, you know, but we were t- having a conversation on the phone and it was like after my birthday party. So I was psyched. <laughs> Look at and you, then, like, and then like nothing came of it, you know, cause I was like, too you were in fifth grade. Even, yeah. yeah. Cause I was too nervous to even talk to her in person. So. Childhood romance. Go. We need, we need yeah. some more, uh, <laughs> like the, the complexities of it all. It's like that pro it was so profound that today we're talking about it. But in reality, like probably eight months later, you didn't, neither of you existed in the same world as the other. You know what I mean? 100%. Yeah. All right. The final question. Weirdest travel story. Joe, kick us off. I don't travel that much. So I guess, well, what do you count as like a travel story? Uh, the uh, As I say, the question is plain. So that could mean a car ride that's two hours or flying to Zimbabwe, whatever, whatever it would be. I travel all the time in the country. I put like 70,000 miles a year on my car. Very Um, good. But, but just thinking of like a weird, so I go, I I guess I stop at all kinds of weird places. I'm trying to think of weird places that are stopped. Here, I'll I'll give a good one. When I was driving, I just did a road trip with my family to Yellowstone. On the way back, we stopped in Denver, saw uh, my, my wife's, cousin and had a nice time in denver but then it was like okay we gotta really start driving so we're driving 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 get about halfway through kansas that night it's like 11 o'clock at night stop fill the tank at you know middle of nowhere russell kansas actually rest area um and uh amanda is shuffling things around in the back of the vehicle and i hear her go oh my god i hear a car screeching um while we're at the gas pump, uh, uh, like late 80s, early 90s, Jeep, red Jeep Wrangler screeches by us, misses hitting the pump by about a foot. Front axle is smashed in half. Um, pulls the e-brake so he doesn't run through the gas station. Holy crap. Hops out of the car, is screaming, somebody help me, help me. He's got a gun. To which the point where we're like, who's got a gun? Until the white pickup truck lifted large white pickup truck pulls up beside it like out of nowhere and a large man hops out of said truck he did not have a gun that i saw but he did chase the man into the store and um that's how i almost died in the middle of kansas uh <laughs> like a month and a half ago so and um, that story just count for both me and pete yeah no that's no that's an example i want you guys and you know like yo sometimes a weird story is you know, I, I was at this re- this truck stop and somebody was wearing this weird shirt and then they farted. I don't know, you know? I mean, I saw a UFO once, I guess. Where? <laughs> it was in Nebraska, of all places. Okay. And I've, been to, I've been to Roswell, um, but this I was driving in Nebraska and I, I uh, it was, I, I, I've had multiple encounters, actually. This, this might be a whole other podcast. I but, think it uh, is, but let's tease it a little bit. Tell us about the Nebraska UFO. It was like some fire in the sky shit. Like, I wasn't sure if it was going to come and come and, um, come and scoop me out. You know? <laughs> okay, then to follow up on that, when you were in Roswell, did you spend a significant amount of time there? I did. I went on a road trip with my brother because he wanted to bring a car to California. So I oh, said yeah. I would drive out with him and fly back, but only if we went through Roswell. <laughs> um, and he was like, come on, like there's way better places to stop. And I was like, no, nah, it's the only condition. He, he's not wrong, but yeah, continue. Oh yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> we went to Roswell and it was just like a regular, there was just like a Bank of America. and a like Burger King with an alien Burger painted King. in front of it. Yeah, exactly right. There was like some aliens painted on all the things. 
he was so mad. He's probably still mad at me about it. Um, <laughs> I, I will say that I've been to two places that were super disappointing. Roswell's the number one with a bullet. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty high up there. Oh, I mean, too. Wait, wait, where where is that? Frankenmuth, Michigan. I have not. 365-day-a-year Christmas town. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> There's a recreation of the chapel where I, – I, by the way, I didn't know there was a the chapel where Silent Night was first performed, but okay. there's a recreation of it that's 24-7, 365, wow. I think Silent Night. It's pretty disappointing. Well, I did go to Punxsutawney. Uh, now, it wasn't oh. Groundhog's Day, so, <laughs> you know, but I would recommend to anybody – don't go to Punxsutawney unless you're going on Groundhog's Day. I, so I get gas there all the time. So I drive between Michigan and, and Philly like <laughs> way too many times than you want to know about. Sure, I, sure. I, I drive right through Punxsutawney. I've gotten gas there actually at the Sheets a bunch, but I've always been like, i got to go here for Groundhog's Day. You, for Groundhog's Day, I, I would still consider it. I went to Gobbler's Knob. Gobbler's Knob in the middle of July – Pretty boring. Uh, do you, sure. you, you want to know where uh, Punxsutawney Phil lives when it's not Groundhog's Day? Question. Yeah, um, where? In a weird, <laughs> let's call it a pen, but really, do you know, um, McDo- think about a McDonald's in the 80s and the ball pit and how oh, it was like wow. in a glass thing and then there's the balls. Well, yeah, replace the balls with a bunch of like, you know, hamster litter, whatever it is, the, the just crushed up hay or whatever yep he lives in one of those that's probably eight by six with a glass window at at the library in the center of town that is you're making me want to see that it's so sad it's the saddest thing like he might as well live in a hamster cage like it's awful and the town itself was super boring had a very uninspiring meal um and walked around and I guess it's cool that there's oversized groundhog prints that lead to Gobbler Snob, but uh, you're kind of making me want to go there. So well, next time you're through, I can vouch for all of that. I've been to Punxsutawney for Groundhog's Day. It was a bucket list trip for me. Oh, I nice. think my wife is probably going to hate me forever because I took her on it. <laughs> and we, had to, we had to wake up at like 3 a.m. to go up to Gobbler's Knob, and it was definitely yep, right. like minus 15. Um, and the groundhog didn't come out until six. So you just kind of wait around for hours in the cold. It's like, God. it's brutal, dude. It's not as, it's not as fun as groundhog day made it look, but, uh, well, it was worth it. I, I liked it too. Nothing's fun about that. I mean, it's a great movie, but it's, if you watch it, it's like existential horror. Oh yeah. Sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and, and from, from, so the town in it isn't actually Punxsutawney in the movie. It's somewhere in Indiana, I believe. Yeah, true. It was not filmed in Punxsutawney. So, yeah, and when you get to the town of Punxsutawney, and I knew that going in, but when you get to the town of Punxsutawney, it's like, oh, this isn't even this isn't yeah. even fifty percent as cool as the movie. All right, I will say I got a sick Groundhog Day shirt though that has on the back it has every Groundhog Day and whether or not the Groundhog saw its shadow. Whoa, okay, I gotta go. To- you guys are selling me on. You're not talking me out of this at all. <laughs> um. Okay, it so fun. I recommend the, it. it. It might be cold though. Just bundle up. Yeah, Pete. Do you have any other good travel story? That's a pretty good one. Maybe we'll say we'll we'll give you the Punxsutawney as your travel story, unless you have something better. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's um, pretty good. I was, I, was, I was gonna very short version. I was just gonna touch on uh, since Fid came into this conversation. Yeah. Uh, it was a tour story. Maybe I'll tell the whole thing at some point. But 
I was on the road with a band called Kamikaze, which I believe Joe was uh, Don Giovanni Don Giovanni two number two. Yeah, yep. um, we were staying in Akron, Ohio, and I at one point I walked into the house and I was like, "This looks like the hallway from The Shining." Um, and then I woke up the next morning and Fid was missing and we couldn't find him. And this is pre cell phone, so we couldn't just call him. Um, and Fid we might not have a cell phone still. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I think he just got one. So I think, I think, he did I think it is officially on the internet at this point. But <laughs> yeah. Um, but long story short, we found him in a bush near the McDonald's on the highway, which was like three miles away from the house that we were staying at. So oh my God. I'll let you fill in the gaps, you know, in wow. your imagination. Well, Joe, I want to say big thank you for joining us, uh, yeah. giving us a little extra insight on Power Move and uh, overall just being a great guest. Um, big I'd thanks. love to come back. I'll talk about any New Jersey album, including my own. Um, Fantastic. There's a really good story about Power Move. I want to tell it. I was, I was, it never came up. I never found a way to sneak it oh, in. Oh, hey, let's do it. This is the bonus for the people who it's stuck with us through the nonsense. It was yeah. for like two hours. It's not, and by good story, I mean a really stupid story. But it's, but it's, it's great for a podcast that goes in deep on it. There's a great connection between Power Move and the band Trap Them. The uh, if anyone even re- yep. if that band memorable at all. Part of me trying to really impressed streaming females with me being like a real label was they wanted to do a digi pack. And me and Jared looked through samples of like 30 days. I ordered, I got not ordered like a pay, but I, I asked icon who was doing our, at the time I was like, can you send me some samples for digi packs? So I was like, send me every different kind you have. And we also looked through, I have an extensive CD collection, like a, an extensive CD collection. And so we also looked through a lot of those um, and then the sam- they sent me a sample for a Trap Them album uh, called like Seizures and Barren Praise. Yeah. I still never heard, but the DigiPack is incredible. Um, <laughs> and we, so, and it was like, ended up being a custom, like, it ended up being a custom DigiPack. And it, was, it wasn't like they were like, oh, we, we trapped them, made those like custom. We, we, it was, so it's like, I guess we have to make a custom size. And it's like, if you look at the original pressing of Power Moves CDs, um, they're, these, they're these weird, it's like a square. So it's more like an album than, than, a, than a rectangle, which most CDs are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also, we looked at, there was a Vic Chestnut album we used for inspiration called, um, not Skitter on Takeoff, the one before that. Um, Vic Chestnut's album from that same year. Yeah, I wish I remembered the name of it. I should remember the name of it. Yeah. When we used that, we realized we liked when there was an inner sleeve in it, even though, so we made these blank, there was nothing to put on there. We made these blank inner sleeves to put in there to give it a little more thickness. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. it was inspired by Trap Them, Seizures and Barren Praise, which I've never heard because the album came with, um, it didn't come with a CD inside. It was just the dust jacket or just, just the, the, the sleeve, jacket. right? It was a beautiful, it was a beautiful sleeve. Like, uh, I, <laughs> really was like and we've used that we've since used that on a few other things but then they also because they're custom and then icon folded they became a huge pain to make so then when we repressed it we had to we reformat it for a more standard digi pen that's really funny i see this is the this is the the kind of uh oh, that was the level of detail i was hoping to bring to you and i then love you it these more interesting questions well you know what <laughs> next time we're gonna do a full breakdown on the uh, the layouts and the CMYK and all that, um, and oh, see yeah. see how we can break it down. But there's a, uh, of, there's a lot of that. 
All right. So everybody, thank you for joining us. Joe, obviously, thank you for yeah. joining us. Yeah, Joe, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. Do I just click bye or whatever? No, we'll do it. Hang on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. It was great. Be in touch.